Welcome to the Thunderbolts Project Podcast. We're hard at work putting the finishing touches on the interviews we conducted with many of the brilliant speakers in attendance at the recent Electric Universe Conference held this January in New Mexico. For now, we're pleased to bring you the Red Ice Radio broadcast featuring Thunderbolts Project founding member David Talbot. Heinrich Palmgren is one of the most talented interviewers in the podcast world, covering unconventional topics guaranteed to satisfy any interest. Over the next hour, he and David Talbert touch on a wide array of issues, from mythology to electrical physics, that the Thunderbolts Project was created to illuminate and move forward. You can find more podcasts from Red Ice at redicecreations.com and access their vast database of interviews by subscribing at redicemembers.com. We hope you enjoy this interview. This is Red Ice Radio. From the dream to reality. Greetings, listeners and seekers of authenticity. This is Red Ice Radio, a beacon of sanity from Northern Europe. My name is Henrik, and we're pleased that you've decided to tune in to listen and hopefully learn something new. We're trying our very best to give you a balanced approach to many of the fascinating and intriguing topics that we cover. Please take a look at our website, redicecreations.com, for much more. Today we have David Talbot with us. He is a comparative mythologist whose work offers a radical new vantage point on the origin of ancient cultural themes and symbols. His research has been the primary catalyst behind the Saturn model and is the subject of the documentary Remembering the End of the World and Symbols of an Alien Sky. He's also the author of the Saturn Myth and co-author with Wallace Thornhill of Thunderbolts of the Gods and the Electric Universe. You can find more at his website thunderbolts.info. David proposes that a polar configuration inspired by Immanuel Velikovsky involving the five planets Jupiter, Saturn, Venus, Mars and Earth occurred in ancient times. The five planets orbited the Sun as a single linear unit which rotated about a point close to Saturn before its breakup at the end of the Golden Age. Incorporating the theory of the electric universe, Talbot makes a compelling case that the violent evolution of this polar configuration created symbols in the heavens that provoked the myth-making epoch of human history to begin. Welcome to Red Ice Radio, David Talbot. It's an honor to have you with us today. Thank you very much for coming on the program. Oh, you bet. My pleasure. This is uh, going to be really, really interesting for me. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's like where to begin, you know. <laughs> we have previously, uh, as you might know, David, we've had people from the Thunderbolts uh, group, if you will, with us, uh, people like Donald Scott, uh, Rens van der Sluis, and also, of course, Wallace uh, Thornhill. And I've been following your work for probably eight years or so now. I've, been, I've seen it evolve wow. and, and, and developed, and I personally think it's one of the most exciting theories uh, that you've been developing and, and condensing, bringing together knowledge and research from many different scientists and, and fields to present you know, a cohesive and very compelling case for not only the electric universe, but also the history of our solar system, and as I hope we'll get into later, possibly the event there that triggered the, uh, the start to the initi initiation point, almost, if you will, of the human uh, imagination as such. But is there a way, David, that you can kind of condense your discoveries for us here in the first few minutes for potential uh, newcomers to your work, yeah, David? Yes. <laughs> That's the challenge of a lifetime, Henrik. I know. <laughs> Getting a clear statement that can meet a person uh, where that person is and even in terms of his uh, deeper interests. It is a challenge because it is so sweeping, but my entire focus was drawn originally into the historical question, and that question was simply, what in the name of heaven happened in ancient times? And that question is uh, one that grows increasingly compelling the closer you get to the heart and the spirit of antiquity because there were things on the minds of our forebears that are not even on the map of modern theory. 
they were experiencing an unstable solar system. They were experiencing intense electrical events, and they were experiencing planetary forms in the sky by virtue of a close congregation of planets that just dominated human imagination in the beginning. So when you are looking back at the ancient world, the revolutionary finding is that mythology and symbolism and all of the ancient bizarre ritual and magical practices were intimately connected to extraordinary cosmic events. In other words, the myths arose as human imagination in its reaction to and its interpretation of natural events that are completely unknown in our time. So you cannot just pro project our solar system, the things we see in the sky today, back in time and understand a single component of the ancient cultures. I mean, if you remove the events I'm referring to, you wouldn't have any content of the early civilizations. It was all commemorative. It was all looking back to the age of gods and wonders. So there's a way to consider all of this, but how do you draw reliable conclusions? And that's where there is actually a surprise. The surprise is you have to look past the clutter on the surface of antiquity, all of this completely confusing carnival of myths and symbolism locally. You look past that and you work only with the points of agreement between the different cultures. And that's where the surprise comes in because once you begin to name the points of agreement, you see that there are hundreds of them. It would never be evident at the surface, but you dig down to the substructure of human memory and let the events shine through by virtue of the points of agreement. Now that is how a reconstruction occurred that is highly specific uh, in, in incomparably hmm. more testable than the kinds of things that we tinker with in the theoretical sciences. I mean, nobody's going to believe this until they get into it and see, wow, if these things occurred, it should become obvious. It's just too extraordinary. It's too unique. The formations were evolving. They were very specific. Artists on the earth were carving them on stone around the world, different vantage points on an evolving configuration. It cannot withstand investigation unless there's a fundamental validity to it. Does that make sense? <laughs> it makes sense. And, and the big question, David, is, is why? Why would it go to this extent? And why are many of the symbols that we see from around the world so similar? And, and you touch upon these idea, this idea that, that they are... They have a connection between them, and, and we can discover that if we give, begin to map it, as you have done in your work, obviously. And, and this aspect, David, of human memory have, have, has always been interesting, interesting to me. Uh, the story, the story, if you will, of, of the event that potentially kind of uh, kicked, kicked everything off here. How, how did we... We have fallen out from this, this, uh, this story. We, we've forgotten it in some way, correct, David? What, why? How, did, how is that exactly possible? Exactly so. By the way, Henrik... You speak with a real uh, sense of what all of this means. I mean, I don't normally get this in an interview with a person, but you actually have been following this and picked up at your uh, good sense, your reason, and just the intuitive level that this has to have an explanation. Yeah. I mean, the evidence has to have an explanation and why it all grew confusing over the millennia. It has to have an explanation. And there is a very simple uh, reason why we cannot make sense of the myths by just roaming across the surface of the different cultures and so on. And nothing will add up. For example, there is no myth anywhere that is dependable. Told in a local setting, you would never know 
where it is connecting you to the substructure and where it is just part of the chaotic evolution of myth over time. Mm. I could give 10,000 examples of that. You can't draw any conclusions from a particular myth. But if you are working with the points of agreement, you are always shining a spotlight on one culture at a time. The points of agreement will immediately leap out at you. But how did it happen that we forgot all this? It's very simple. The, the formation seen in the sky disappeared. The gods went away. There was a, a phase of incredible upheaval and terror, and then the sky was no longer the same. Now, along came Greek and Roman cultures and others that followed these events by, let's just say, 2,000 years. Now, what would they see around them that would lend any support to the myths? It just wasn't there. Mm -hmm. So they grew skeptical, or they tried to understand the myths in terms of things that they could see in the sky. It was just getting everything totally confused. But nevertheless, the points of agreement did persist and will stand out through a, a comparative approach. I mean, the Greeks, for example, they had a great interest and a reverence for this local mountain called Olympus. Well, what will that tell you about the myth-making epoch? Almost nothing. But other cultures had a great respect for another mountain that they could name locally. Well, what does this mean? It was the mountain of the gods. Mm -hmm. Well, the key is very simple. Look to what they say about the, mo the mountain, like the Harabarzeti of the Persians. It was the axis of the turning sky. What did the Greeks say about Olympus? It was Aegeus, the axis. Well, you can see that actually around the world, here in China, uh, fables about the, the sacred mountain Quinlun. What was it? It was the polar axis. So this idea of a polar mountain that was later translated into these localized symbols attached to, to sacred hills in one's own geographic location, that, that localization just leaves the whole picture confused. But what was the axis of the world that they have, they have identified that mountain with? It was the mountain of the gods. It was the mountain of the assembly. On top of that mountain stood the central sun, identified as the great luminary at the celestial pole. So everything you see about this mountain is confirming it was an axial column. It was the giant, the, the heaven-sustaining giant, holding this great sphere of heaven mm. aloft. Well, what was that? I mean, everything begins to crystallize as a definitive question, and then when the question is posed, you do see that the answers become quite obvious. It just was a different sky. It's that, that simple. That's right, and, and this is obviously materializing the mythology that we're getting. This is turning it into something physical, and, and I think we should obviously backtrack here a little bit uh, as well as, as far as I know, David, you, you worked briefly a little bit with, with Velikovsky. You, you, you published one of his work, I think, together with him. This is um, part where, where, where some of your, I guess, inspiration as well did come from, and, and I, I want to try to get to this point of how this guy, the, the comparative picture here, how this guy looks today, yeah. how it looked in the past, and, and, and what made this the event, as we're trying to get to here, how this, how this happened. So break down the mechanics for Excellent. us. Excellent. Excellent. Let's just start with Velikovsky for a moment, because it was Velikovsky that opened the door for me to the whole, uh, the, the, the door to the whole panorama of ancient myths and symbols. And, and I found enough inspiration in Velikovsky that I just couldn't turn away. I, I couldn't even look back once the once this ancient landscape began to clarify itself for me. But Velikovsky was a very controversial theorist. And those of us who have really worked with his ideas recognize that he was wrong on innumerable points in his reconstruction, and we can get into that sometime if you'd like. But the, the heart of it is this. He understood that ancient testimony counts. The, the memories of humanity cross-culturally, they count as evidence. Uh, 
And he understood that the evidence as a whole was pointing to an unstable solar system in ancient times. More specifically, he diagnosed certain things that are absolute bedrock. They will never be refuted by science. The, the, the planet Venus was a terrifying comet in antiquity. You take all the words and symbols for comets in the different languages around the world, and you will see to an extraordinary degree that they were attached to the planet Venus. And you won't even understand why the Venus was the representative of the mother goddess, the only planet that was ever really called the representative of the mother goddess was Venus. Well, why would that be? When you get to identifying what was meant by the cometary aspect of Venus and the place of Venus in a congregation of planets in antiquity, if you can just bring that to life, you can see what was there, you will have no doubt as to why Venus was called the mother goddess and the planet Mars was considered the child in the womb of mm. Venus. Mm. Now, that's getting into a con. It's hard to dis depict these kinds of things when you're just speaking, and I'm, I'm speaking here and I'm gesturing, but that's not sufficient. <laughs> you know what I mean? How do, right. how do we say this in words? A congregation <laughs> of planets that was called the Great Conjunction of the Golden Age. The Great Conjunction. It had a particular character. A single line would run through the heart of the gathered bodies. That, th those were the words of the Babylonian priest astronomer, Barossus. A single line running through the hearts of the, the heart or hearts of the gathered bodies. Now that was what I had reconstructed years before I just happened to bump into the words of Barossus. Because what I was reconstructing required planets to be seen along a single polar axis and to stay in polar alignment. And that idea of an alignment of gathered bodies is so different from anything that we see today that there is just no comparison. It's what makes it impossible to understand the myths by looking out at our sky today. But if you can imagine a, a towering form, a sphere in the sky, identified in later astronomy as the planet uh, Saturn, mm -hmm. if, you can, if, if you can visualize that just hanging huge in the polar sky, pressing in on the Earth, and within that sphere, visually, the planet Venus just discharging violently like a starburst, and that was the primordial form of the comet Venus, which was called the animating life, the, the animating uh, eye, heart, and soul of the primeval sun, Saturn being the primeval sun. Well, that's the most ridiculous idea you could ever spread, you know. <laughs> Saturn, this little remote speck in the sky, was the primeval sun. Well, it surprises people to find out that the words for sun were the names of the planet Saturn. Helios was a name of the planet Saturn. Sol was a name of the planet Saturn. The Babylonian texts say of Shamash, Shamash is the planet Saturn. Even the alchemists remembered Saturn was the best sun. So the subject is the exemplary luminary in the sky in an age that preceded the present time. Yeah. Mars, born from the womb of the mother goddess. The mother goddess has Venus, the central eye, heart, and soul of the primeval sun, identified as the planet Saturn. So it's hard in just words to make this come to life. But when you see it, you see the specificity, and you know at such a level of confidence that if this happened, if this was the source of myth and symbolism, the evidence should just be overwhelming. Or conversely, if this was not what was seen, it should be the most easily refutable, completely insane idea that anyone has ever expressed. We'll falsify it in a minute. But that has not happened. Yeah, that's right. This conjunction that you're mentioning obviously created these symbols of an alien sky. Um, you you have a DVD series in in this that I want to yeah. mention. I, I've seen the first part and 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 parts of the of the second one. It is absolutely uh, riveting in the sense also the, how it 
describes visually what you are talking about and 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 the the pieces of the puzzle really fall in place obviously when you can see this but what i would like to ask you david is did this great conjunction regularly happen in in the ancient times or was this a one-time event well i i think it was essentially a one-time event but with this exception it was being disrupted uh, it, uh, while it was in place. In other words, the gathered planets uh, appeared in, in a very early phase as remarkably stable. So there was this stable, aligned congregation of planets along a single axis, and that axis was also the polar axis of the Earth. So the entire sky revolved around this configuration visually as the Earth turned on its axis. Now, that axis of primordial alignment was progressively disturbed. And the disturbance of that alignment was giving rise to uh, librations, a swinging like a pendulum. This is why the acid tests of this configuration are so precise because imagine those bodies up there and this discharging sphere of Venus right in the center of Saturn but the discharge streamers are actually moving out and up toward Saturn now when you when in these librations your field your your line of sight are chain the line of sight is changing what that is giving you is an explanation of the most extraordinary converging ancient symbols because it, they become, those streamers become something completely different when you slip off axis and you look at it from another angle. Now, you have to see symbols of an alien sky to really appreciate That's what right. I'm referring to here. Yep. It is shouting to you that the ancient stargazers who recorded these images knew that what is seen on axis and what was seen from a 40 say a 40 45 degree angle off axis and looked so much different they knew that this was the same thing they just knew i mean just as an example the seven headed serpent you know the, the from the neck and shoulders uh, of the god figure these seven heads of a serpent radiating up now they knew that that was the wheel of heaven but it doesn't look like a wheel it, but when you get back on axis it is the perfect representation of the wheel. Mm. You see, so as this libration was occurring, the hand of God, the, the, the five fingers of the hand that have the eye inside it, that's a global image. Oh, yeah. That hand of God was the wheel as well. And when you work with the librations, you see that, oh, of course, here's the image of the wheel. So I do a three-dimensional representation of this wheel seen along axis where the, the streamers are of the spokes, which are the, the streamers from Venus, are radiating out and up, and I move 45 degrees off. Oh, it's a perfect hand with the eye in the center. And, and I you mean, see? that's one of the more ancient symbols that there are. The, the Hamsa, is, you know, it's, it's referred to as... Yeah, that, that's one. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. yeah, you got it. Yeah. Um, so this, I mean, I want to try to get to timeline, I guess, when... This happened. We've ha because we've had alternative, uh, you know, historians and anthropologists that they're trying to find something in the human record that that set things off, that that kickstarted something. Yeah. Uh, because people like Graham Hancock and others have have tried to, you know, they, they they vehemently argued the point that for millions of years nothing happened, and then eventually, boom, basically overnight something, something happened. Something extraordinary happened. Yes. See, this is where we have a common interest. We have a common interest with uh, so many different uh, kind of typically modern fields of investigation, and there is a role for us to play because uh, from many different vantage points, I mean, you could just take visionary artists, for example, in their exploration of the mythic archetypes. Well, they're discerning that something is there. And the Graham Hancocks and many people gathered around Graham Hancock, uh, John Anthony West, and and Robert Baval and so on, mm. uh, they are recognizing that something was on the minds of the ancient sky worshippers that we haven't understood. Now, but there is a role for us in this, and it can be a bit disturbing sometimes if one is highly invested in a unique interpretation, like they're trying to explain the ancient preoccupation with 
with the movement of the heavens and disaster and that sort of thing. They're trying to explain it through the procession of the equinoxes you mm-hmm. know, over thousands of years. Well, we can bring clarity to these obsessions of the ancient world, and we can bring clarity to the mythic archetypes uh, that are so fascinating to the visionary artist. But it will change what he's seen and, and what he's doing and what he's saying. It will change. And I could just as well mention uh, various religious traditions, various scientific, quasi-scientific traditions, various mystic traditions, uh, the, the, the symbolism of theosophy and anthroposophy and so on. Uh, in all of these, our role is not to take a sledgehammer to what they've discerned and what they have confused. It's just to bring clarity up to the level at which one is eager to hear uh, something completely new. And that's what we're bringing, something completely new. That's right. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's a really interesting uh you know, compil- compilation that that you guys brought forward, and we're just obviously scraping the surface here. The the, the symbols of the zodiac, obviously, I, I understand that that's a powerful thing, and and I wonder here now, when, when all you know considerations in you know taken in into the picture here, what came first? I mean, it, it could be argued, I guess, from from your point of view, David, that the conjunction uh, was the you know initial point that gotten the the ma- mankind at the time to start looking up. In the sky, start to start uh, telling a story with, with what they saw in the sky. But before the conjunction, this might not have been there. What, what do you think? Well, uh, you were mentioning the zodiac, for example. Uh, now, and I'm not absolutely certain I, I got the full gist of your uh, question, Henrik. But uh, when you speak of the zodiac, and you ask a question as to how old it is and what is its connection to the birth of ancient myths and symbols the birth of ancient myths and symbols came before there was a zodiac the symbols of the zodiac are the symbols of the primordial epoch projected onto the sky of a later time Mm -hmm. and this was what was occurring relentlessly around the world in the immediate wake of that uh, age of gods and wonders after the gods went away you know all the myths recount how the gods went away typically in the midst of overwhelming catastrophe the dying god and all of that it will be a part of that story of the eventual full departure of the gods from that celestial theater now how did our ancestors then work to remember and to hold on to the imagery. They did that by localizing the images. The, the, the mountain of the gods, the axis pillar of the sky, was localized uh, at the point of a uh, local mound or hill or mountain. It became the local symbol of the primordial mountain of the gods. But human imagination in its celebrating of that symbol in the absence of the original celestial referent gradually confused the whole picture and began to confuse the symbol with the archetype or Mm. the thing symbolized. Mm. And this was occurring throughout the heavens as well. In other words, astronomer priests were finding echoes and symbols rather arbitrarily in all of the gatherings of the stars uh, the different star grouping so so every identifiable group of stars played some role in a kind of storybook all of the symbols of which are actually pointing back to a prior epoch so the great bear for example or um, the uh, the symbol of Taurus mm-hmm. or, or the twins Name a, a symbol constellationally, and and I can tell you that that symbol can be traced back to a primordial time in which the symbol had no connection. The root had no connection to a gathering of stars. It, uh, there were no stars in the beginning. We couldn't even see the stars. We were in the 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 glow, the golden glow 
of the golden age. There was enough of a plasma environment and dusty, uh, luminous environment through which the planets were moving that we couldn't see out all the way out to stars and so on. How how quickly did the did the event and then obviously the the, the fur, further moving away of the planets occur? Because again, I just want to emphasize to people that that this was. This was huge in the sky. This was a big thing that could be seen. Very long, important to emphasize that. Yeah. <laughs> so the, this stars means... didn't, the little planets that we see today, right. not what we were seeing then. This was a towering formation, yeah. exquisitely beautiful in some phases and utterly terrifying. I mean, so terrifying that the early cultures had no other fears on their mind than that, that this kind of scale of disaster would occur again. But the, the, uh, it's clear that the, the confused epoch that followed ran for, oh, at least a thousand years. And by confused, I mean the planets were not on stable courses. You go back 2,500 years, and there are no planet lists at all. And yet they were celebrating the planets. I mean, we know that in honor of the Sumerians was Venus. But there was, no, there, there was no planet list in which you could say, okay, here's Venus moving on this period, and that's how we identify Inanna as Venus. Mm-hmm. No. It's just that the, the scholars are seeing enough of Inanna continuously over time that when the planet lists emerge in the first millennium B.C., I mean, thousands of years after the, let's just say 2,000 years after these events, Planet lists are finally emerging, and they don't emerge at once. The slowest is Saturn, but soon as you could name Saturn by its period, they said that was the primordial sun. Hmm. But that's down in the first millennium B.C. They didn't know. I mean, it's, it's bizarre. How can you name a planet if you don't have it on a list with a period? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> these, were, these were just the gods. But eventually, over... Many, many centuries, the gods were identified with planets. Now, how reliable was that identification? It wasn't perfect because so many cultures didn't even preserve astronomical identifications. So there could be an arbitrariness, just like they're naming stars and so on, under the the force of this symbolism they don't even understand. They're just projecting names out. But the amazing thing is how well this is preserved, give, you know, in, in spite of all of the potential for confusion. That's why I say, you know, Mars was the great warrior around the world. Venus was the only planetary representative of the mother goddess around the world. Now, if somebody searches for a lifetime, maybe they'll find an exception. (laughs) And that happened recently. It was a rather humorous event within our private communication. Somebody finally found an instance of Mars where maybe Mars was identified as a goddess figure. I mean, this would be a really remarkable exception to a rule that has always appeared just absolutely ironclad. Yeah, yeah. So I was warned not to say always, you know, when I'm... <laughs> <laughs> well, and then have Cochran, who had actually delivered, I mean, who was the one who actually pointed this out, he said, hold it, hold it, hold it. I think the mother goddess that was associated with red in that little text from Native America. It actually it actually was not Mars, it was Venus. And he, he mentioned then how Venus was identified with the color red. It doesn't you can't use the arbitrary standards that we tend to use to try to name I mean if there yeah. isn't a solid astronomical tradition identifying a star or a god in a planet, you gotta be wary of that because there are enough really solid and well-documented traditions that establish Mother Goddess Venus, Cosmic Warrior Mars. It's just, uh, it's actually just the most stunning realization at the most elementary level that despite the fact that Mars doesn't look masculine, despite the fact that Venus in in the sky today does not look feminine, there was something that affected human imagination around the world. So I get back to my point. When you see the configuration in the sky, you see it evolve, you'll have no doubt as to how it happened that Mars became the the masculine figure par excellence and and Venus was always remembered as the feminine figure Mm. par excellence. Yeah. And what's interesting with the story is that it gets, it's complex, obviously, because we have a relationship to the 
the planets slash the gods, which is kind of it, it's schizophrenic. We we venerate them, but we fear them at the same time. There's a point here when when Saturn, Helios, or or Sol is turned into death or or, or Kronos, the the timekeeper, oh, and, and oh, yes. Venus, the graceful goddess, into an angry monster. Tell us about that. And same thing with the the warrior hero figure. He becomes the male uh, chaos monster. Yeah. So, it, it, and there was actually a, an evident desire on the part of chroniclers to preserve the integrity of the, let's just say the the shining, the lighter, the more venerable aspect of these figures. And so they would separate out the the terrifying aspect from the uh, let's just say the love goddess. Uh, of the identical traditions and so on. In the beginning, the love goddess becomes the chaos, the Medusa figure, in effect. But that's not comfortable. So they would let the other cultures, you know, the surrounding cultures, mother goddess figure, be the terrible goddess. And they would they would purify their story of Aphrodite, for example, <laughs> the love goddess, the yeah. goddess of light and love. Now this happened all the time. But go back to the prototypes of those two figures, Medusa and Aphrodite, and you're at, in the, you're you're right at the lap of Inanna, Sumerian Inanna, mm-hmm. goddess of love and light and the radiant crown of kings, all of which are very meaningful. But she becomes a fiery dragon destroying the world. The That's same thing in e- Egypt with the the, the 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 splendor of the eye goddess Sekhmet, Isis, Hathor, and so on. Well, they all become the terrifying eye, which is the comet Venus, incidentally. Now that's a whole another dimension. But we know that the they raised the or the departure of the eye of Ra as a flaming fire fire breathing uh, dragon. We know that that was Venus. This is this is as provable as anything that you could ask for historically. That is fascinating. It's uh, something I've heard for years, and the first time I heard it, there was something to it. And maybe uh, we can hold off on that. There is a whole story to that, obviously, how it how it came about, how it was uh, from Velikovsky's theory, obviously uh, plunged or came out of of, uh, of Jupiter, right? And uh, this whole story there. But the, I want to go back to this idea of. of of kings and the origins of, of, of kings, even their traditions, their ceremonies, uh, down to their crowns and headdresses in some cases. This oh, is, yeah. it goes back to this, that this is the, the symbols that are being used. Tell us about this. Wow. You've really been paying attention, Henrik. <laughs> well, I, as I said, <laughs> I don't been... <laughs> normally get questions that are this uh, precisely aligned <laughs> to this very detailed reconstruction. But first, uh, the matter of kings. Okay, every king was an imitation of a cosmic king. This is well acknowledged by the best experts. You have like Henry Frankfurt's uh, book, uh, Kingship of the Gods, treating Egyptian and ancient Mesopotamian symbolism. And it's, it's crystal clear that the gods all lived in the shadow. Uh, excuse me, the kings all lived in the shadow of the gods. And they were... Uh, they were really living under a kind of prescription that they duplicate the feats of the prototype, the prototypal gods. Now, at the at the the head of the line of kings, you will have the founding king, and he is the primeval son. So Saturn is always like the first father, and that's the meaning of the Egyptian Atum Ra. That, that figure has nothing to do with our sun. In its archaic expression, it was the central sun at the pole. And, in fact, people like T. Rundle Clark acknowledged that autumn ruled from the, the center of the sky. And he, he recognized that that was at the celestial pole. And that was a primordial idea that, that uh, was uh, held uh, all around the ancient Near East, central sun at the pole. Now, that is the founding king. In ancient Mesopotamia, it's the Sumerian An and the Babylonian Anu. And their position is is so clearly not that of our sun. And in fact, uh, I don't think that there are any Babylonian or Sumerian scholars that identify Anu with the sun. Mm-hmm. It's, it's 
It's this great sphere of heaven when heaven was close to the earth. Well, that's the inherent nature of that Saturnian presence, the great sphere of heaven when heaven was close to the earth before heaven was separated from the earth. And that is the father of kings. So on was the power in the sky that founded kingship. The lines of kings always go back to the founding king. And every king on earth, symbolically, has the blood of the founding king within him. Now, it's, it, 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 it's also clear that the mother goddess has a, an intimate role in the principles of kingship, and the warrior hero has an intimate role, and in both the cases of the mother goddess and the warrior hero, they are very explicitly defined. Mm. The warrior hero becomes, and I'm talking about the cosmic warrior hero figure, he becomes the regent of the primeval sun, uh, carrying the responsibility for ruling the world, and his crown is the star, uh, the radiating, discharging star of Venus. He is in conjunction with the goddess, and that's the nature of the sacred marriage. The warrior hero, in conjunction with the mother goddess who provides him with her, her essence, which is the radiating streamer complex of the crown. The, the conjunction seen from, well, we have two aspects here. It can be seen from various places around the earth, meaning that the, the different people, the different tribes and, and what have you, is seeing something different in the sky just because of the fact that they're you know, on, a, on a different spot on the planet. Then yeah, the, uh, yeah. Excuse me. Just to to, to make one thing clear, uh, that won't give um, variations that would compare with the variations having to do with the position of the Earth itself in the configuration. There, as these librations are occurring along these more cosmic distances, the interplanetary distances, there is a, a a generalized uh, line of sight that would apply to virtually any position on Earth, and it is changing the appearance of those streamers uh, running up from Venus toward uh, the, the great sphere of Saturn. Yeah. So you, you have radi the radiating streamers that, that appear like the petals of a flower on the one hand, and then displaced, when displaced, you, you will have uh, the scallop shell the Venus scallop shell. If you can just, for somebody just listening to these words, I'm painfully aware that, okay, this is starting to sound really obscure, but look at the, the scallop shell of Aphrodite. Now, Aphrodite was also a flower that, and is shown uh, through the symbolism of a flower. Now, a flower is radial. The scallop shell is not radial, but if you can imagine a, let's say a badminton shuttlecock, imagine looking at it on an axis. Mm. It's symmetrical. Now get off axis and look at it. Yep. That's the scallop shell. Yep. It's, these things are, they are absolutely testable. They, they shout to you that there are these underlying identities where we thought we were looking at two different things and we realize we're looking at the same thing. We're looking at the same thing from two different uh, vantage points in a libra in a series of librations, and at the same time, we're looking at the same thing through different words and symbols that are actually describing the same symmetrical form. So the scallop shell and the headdress and the feathers of the peacock and the seven-headed serpent that I mentioned earlier and these kinds of things. They're all intimately connected to the system of evolving radial streamers, but just seen off from a different angle. That's right. This is proved that the hand of God and the wheel of heaven were exactly the same thing. That's a point made in Symbols of an Alien Sky where the three-dimensional representation, you see, okay, well, that's a hand, and then we get back in line, oh, that's a wheel. <laughs> yeah, that's right. People out there should. Uh, there's even some actually videos out there of just uh, tracking different types of symbols, and they show how the software itself makes these trans transitions between the symbols, and you see that one is related to the other, and this is the same idea basically. You you can see how the uh, the, the the cosmic wheel is being is being turned 
into the uh, the, the shell or, or, or many others. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. really yeah. interesting. Yeah. So these are when you think in terms of the testability here, it's like an, it's an open invitation to challenge it because challenging should be so easy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if, if there wasn't actually bedrock here, just reliable bedrock events that had to have uh, occurred or the evidence wouldn't even be in front of us. Yeah, that's right. And, of course, we see then these various... Um, I want to try to weave in a little bit uh, the, the plasma connection here as well because this is... M many of these things and the symbols obviously that, that shows up on... on on the rock art uh, de depictions from everything from the stick man to, to other types of figures is something that be has been recreated in, in, uh, in laboratory conditions. Plasma, uh, which is, it's, since it's scalable, correct? This, the, the same symbol yes. is going to show up no matter how big or how small it is. Tell us about that, David. Well, uh, that is another <clears throat> huge story. And tell me if, we're, if, if I'm uh, going on too long on this stuff. Henrik, no, not at all. We want to hear just, it. Go ahead. Okay, so yeah. um, the scalability of plasma is so important in all of this, and, and, and actually it was Wall Thornhill who first drew my attention to the electrical connection. I mean, it, it, this is such a, a, a remarkable personal story how out of the blue almost I, I got to know Wall Thornhill in the mid-90s, and in 90, late 96, early 97, he landed in my office, you might say, and he, he stayed for 30 days uh, up to a conference that where we were sharing the stage in Portland in early 97. And, and the uh, defining uh, role of Wall's presence here in my office was for him to explain to me that the formations I had reconstructed when I didn't even know what a plasma is, I mean, I was really disregarding the sciences for a reason. I, I just wanted the evidence to speak for itself because I was certain it was reliable, the historical evidence. But here comes Wal Hornhill, and he is saying in so many words, Dave, what you reconstructed are plasma discharge, electric discharge mm. um, formations in a plasma and can be seen in laboratory experiments. Now, that's how Wal Thornhill, who is my co-author on two books, uh, Thunderbolts of the Gods and uh, the Electric Universe, that's how we came together. And within just like three years, we had invited uh, the world's leading expert on highest energy plasma uh, events, plasma instabilities, electric discharge in plasma, named by the name of uh, Tony Perrette. We invited him to a conference in Portland in 2000 because we needed uh, that level of expertise. Uh, he was at Los Alamos and for years was heading up uh, experiments with highest energy uh, electric instabilities in plasma. Now, what occurred here was the most dramatic turning point that I ever experienced since the beginning of the research in 1972. Because I had reconstructed a formation that I had presented to various people and it was a, it was a dramatically evolving configuration in the sky that I called the chain of arrows. That was like embedded cones, one arrowhead embedded in the one above it. A great warrior launches a, an arrow into the sky and then another and another and another, and each embeds itself in the one above it, the chain of arrows. Across all of the, uh, the Americas, you find this repeatedly, but it's actually a global theme, the chain of arrows. Mm -hmm. What a, a, an extraordinary idea and quite preposterous except that it's clear that it had a story that was just too remarkably the same from one culture to another. It became the ladder of the sky, the backbone of the sky, and so on. And I reconstructed how these twin filaments uh, winding up the axis evolved into uh, embedded cones and then a stack of toruses, one on top of each other. So I had a very specific formation and I asked Wal Thornhill just ahead of this conference in 2000 when he was back in my office again I said Wal what is this and he's, he was sure that it was a plasma thing and that he would look into it then we had the conference Tony Peratt was there uh, after the event we had a private gathering of planets 
I mean, a, a private gathering of uh, speakers. And here, Tony Peratt stood up in the middle of that meeting and drew this formation on a whiteboard, uh, a plasma instability. And he called it the Christmas tree. <laughs> and those who knew about the chain of arrows were just absolutely open-mouthed, silent for a few moments. And um, I said, Tony, you've just drawn the chain of arrows. And he said, no, we call it the Christmas tree. <laughs> what, what, is the, what does the chain of arrows do? And I described these entwining filaments uh, separating into these, uh, ultimately into the stack of toruses. But where this defining juncture in that evolution is the, is the embedded cone formation. And he said, that's the evolution of the Parat instability. It was named after him by his team members at Los Alamos. Now, from that moment onward, I mean, we just knew that our lives would never be the same. I mean, we knew that, that there was a level of scientific accord here beyond anything that we had ever imagined before. And Tony Peratt's life just changed completely from that moment on. Yeah. I mean, he just, he, he began organizing these expeditions to chronicle rock art around the world with global positioning. And the data was getting fed into the Roadrunner computer at Los Alamos, uh, the biggest computer in the world. And it was reconstructing these forms seen from different vantage points on Earth. And by the way, the chain of arrows comes down right down <laughs> basically to the base of that formation, which is close enough that that you will, from different vantage points on Earth, you, you will get uh, some variations in the actual appearance of mm. the configuration. Mm. And, uh, uh, and there were auroral dimensions to all of this, intense auroral dimensions where position on Earth is everything. And uh, so these formations in the ancient sky were chronicled, uh, up to thousands of them, uh, thousands of rock art uh, instances recorded with global positioning, fed into the Roadrunner computer. And what I heard back from Tony with absolute confidence was that the formations I had reconstructed are being proven by his fieldwork, being proven by his fieldwork. Yeah. Now, the end of this story is a little more confusing because there was a tremendous amount of pressure on Tony, including what you'd have to just call the, the, the attack of a couple of inquisitors. <laughs> <laughs> and it just, it really made his life unbelievably difficult. And just a couple of years ago, he had quadruple bypass surgery. And it really has interrupted his work. That coupled with the politics of heresy. I mean, the whole thing is just so radical. Yeah. Well. It's, just, it's just amazing. It's an unsatisfactory uh, story in its uh, last year, last couple of years. It's, it, it's almost a, a shame to, to, to talk about it in that sense, to focus on it, because I wish that... Some of these people from, as we know, from Velikovsky all the way up, you know, to people like yourself. And now you mentioned Tony Peratt as well, have been uh, harassed for, 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 for coming with an alternative theory. And I, I, I just think that there must be something to that. There must be a reason for, for, for that. These ferocious attacks, at best they could just leave them alone as, ah, you're, you're just you're cook crazy ideas. But it doesn't end there. It, it, it carries on from there. No, no. Why? But uh, this is why it is not inappropriate to use the word inquisitors for these folks. Now, first off, it's very important to know that the people who engage in that are at the bottom of the scale in terms of scientific uh, credibility. Mm. If you go up toward the top, where you find the people actually responsible for gathering large fields of data and having that data analyzed properly, uh, scientifically, and so on, the people are much more uh, open. They would never countenance this kind of uh, attack by somebody at the bottom trying to earn his stripes. 
Now, this is, people won't realize this because the guys at the top are not free to talk. I mean, so there are constraints even acting on them. Yeah. But if I were to name the most encouraging things that have occurred in the recent years, it would be communications with people at the top. And I have to say, I mean, if people actually knew the level of interest that we're getting right now, they would be stunned. Yeah. They, they would be in a state of disbelief, actually, in many instances. Now, this is going to begin to show up at our conference, by the way, and we do want to say something That's about right. We need to talk about conference that. before we're, we're done. <laughs> but uh, yeah. we, have, we have some very good people coming to the conference. Uh, some of them will be coming anonymously, but some will be a little more visible. Now, I, I'll just give you an example. The largest solar physics laboratory, the most distinguished of its type, is the Lockheed Martin uh, solar physics laboratory. Mm -hmm. And um, just, I think it was just earlier this year, the head of that laboratory uh, retired. He's coming to the event, our conference, and he is speaking. And he is speaking on the IBEX program. This is the... Um, the heliospheric boundary observer. I'm forgetting all of a sudden what the, the title of that is, IBEX, I-B-E-X. But it has produced the most astonishing results about the boundary of the sun's domain and, right. and the structure just outside that boundary and its, and its dynamic evolution. And it's all refuting every prediction that was made <laughs> out of which the the program was launched, mm -hmm. actually. Uh, 30 predictions, everyone refuted. Yeah. And there's more to this story, but I, I don't want to steal Jim Ryder's thunder because he is coming <laughs> in to our conference to talk about that. Interesting. Interstellar Boundary Explorer. That's what that stands for. IBEX, by the way. Uh, IBEX, yes. Very, yeah, very, very exactly. interesting. We, let, let's, uh, we, obviously, as you know, Dave, we have so much more to talk about, and we will proceed and talk more about that uh, in the next hour. We haven't even gone into things like the evidence uh, of the scars on Mars, and that must have been a tremendously oh, wow. interesting period, you know, when those high-res <laughs> images started coming yes. back from, from the warrior hero, oh. confirming m m much of what we're talking about here. But let's talk a little bit more about the conference uh, uh, the Electric Universe 2012. It's in Las, Ve Las Vegas, uh, January 6th to the uh, the 8th. And I think the subtitle for the conference is, is The Human Story. Do, uh, tell us yeah. about that. Yeah. yeah. Well, The Human Story, its time has come. It wasn't a focal point in our earlier presentations of the Electric Universe, but the entire uh, reconstruction of cosmic events from human testimony is self-evidently part of a human story. So theoretical sciences normally don't worry much about the human past. <laughs> but there's another way now of looking at this. If I were to put in front of you, let's just say, a centerpiece uh, of a presentation that I'll give uh, at the conference. It's called Acid Tests of a Historical uh, Reconstruction. I put that image up, and I ask you, now what is the single most important thing for a scientist to know? Well, actually, the most important thing for him to know is that this was experienced around the world. It was seen. It, it, it brings the whole electric universe with it. It brings a radical reconsideration of our understanding of nature as a whole, not just the ancient events, but That's because right. these events are profoundly electrical. They are telling us you cannot uh, ignore the role of electricity in our past. The planetary system changed completely. Well, there are, out goes planetary science. I mean, everything that we ever <laughs> thought about planetary science, it's out the window. But, what, but you can't have these events unless the sun is, I mean, you can't have a, a planet wandering around as a great comet. I mean, Velikovsky was ridiculed for saying such a thing. You, the gases would be ha have to be being expelled at, 25,000 miles per hour, you know, the escape velocity of an Earth-sized planet. Mm. But it was a comet. Therefore, we're missing something. Well, an electric field will e e accelerate particles almost up to the speed of light. 25,000 miles an hour is nothing, folks. <laughs> <laughs> and this was a highly electrified environment. So where's the big news that Venus appeared as a comet? It just did. Now... 
So if you grant the existence of this formation, it really is the most important thing you've ever needed to know, and it will change the entire picture of the natural world, the entire picture of the cosmos. If the sun is the center of an electric field, it's not the only star out there that is the center of an electric field. <laughs> right. You have to start. You have to start paying attention to the role of electricity in space. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that means cosmically, up to intergalactic scales. So nothing, nothing will withstand an, the opening of the window to the electric universe. And by the way, this is this window is opening at a spectacular rate right now. Things that we would have thought, oh, they're they're going to really have a hard time accepting this now. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, electricity in space is coming more and more into the popular uh, lexicon well, in and the it, it, uh, space science. And it should, shouldn't it? I mean, since the uh, era of, of uh, Hannes Alfvén and, and some of the other uh, great people who've done work on this, that, that, that's that's fairly a long time ago now. We should have moved on in that sense. But but despite all the resistance, of course, as you say, it's encouraging to know that it is moving ahead and, and there's just there's just so much to the to the story, David, that we haven't even you know touched upon. But as you know, we will carry on with, with the second hour, talk more about this. But in the meantime, then, uh, we want to relay people to, to the to the website for more information. Thunderbolts.info. And and uh, first of all, I want to you know mention some of your DVDs and books, of course. But the conference in itself first. There's a page there for for that. And can people buy tickets uh, through that page, or how does that work? Yes, indeed. Uh, it, that uh, page on the conference. Incidentally, it's thunderbolts.info. Thunderbolts is plural. Dot info. And if you go to the, that site, the home page will have a, a very visible link to Electric Universe 2012, The Human Story. That's the conference in Las Vegas, January 6th through 8th. And uh, it's a very well-organized set of pages, and registration is very clean, uh, very easy, and our registration also surpasses. I, I, I mean, uh, it surpasses... Uh, any of our earlier expectations all, already, several weeks before the conference, we've surpassed what we had been shooting for. That's so right. it's gaining a lot of attention. And, then, and of course, you'll be there, Henrik. <laughs> I wish I could. <laughs> I wish I could head over to Las Vegas. I would. I would okay, like to well, be we'll there. Okay, we'll talk. We'll talk. Okay. Uh, but, but by the way, David, uh, I just want to mention as well. You have there's two episodes out right now of, of Symbols of an Alien Sky. The first one yeah. kind of covering uh, the the the, uh, the the conjunction, the, the the event that we've been talking about. The second one going into yes. to Mars. Uh, is the third one coming along? How's it going there, by the way? Oh, it's actually going very well. Uh, and generally, uh, the words "it's going very well" mean that it's getting bigger. Okay, <laughs> it's not going to be just three episodes. And I I was realizing that as I I could see more clearly we had to separate out the material on Mars because it's more definitive than people might even realize if they hadn't seen the, the initial uh, episode of symbols. If you take the, the position of Mars in that configuration of planets, it is a certainty that Mars will show hemispheric dichotomies. It's just a certainty. You mm. couldn't have it embedded in that discharge the way it is shown without it's uh, de de developing very different hemispheres and being, being carved miles deep. So to see that the northern hemisphere of Mars was actually excavated miles deep, I mean, it's a fact. Nobody can deny it. The crust it has been excavated. It's not distor a distorted sphere. It's an, a, the removal of crustal material yeah. in the north, yeah. exactly as you would expect, the kind of thing you would expect. And And when I began to see that, by following the prediction of this reconstruction, you get to this incredible test, and every test is met. I mean, every defining feature on the surface of Mars is replicable in the laboratory with the electric discharge, and the, the overriding feature, which is dendritic ridge systems, you can't get dendritic ridge, ridge systems through anything known to uh, planetary scientists. Erosion will erode a dendritic uh, ridge system. You get dendritic ravines, of course, through water flow and so on, but dendritic ridges, no. Yeah. 
and you're all over Mars. But you do get dendritic ridge systems in the electric discharge up to a positively charged surface. We will uh, get into it more in the second hour. Talk about the lightning-scarred planet Mars, Valles Marinaris, as people will know. That I mean, that's a huge monumental yeah. scar on the planet. What the heck is that? We'll get into it. But thunderbolts.info, that is the website. Head on over there. Check things out there. Lots of good information. Uh, I'd recommend, first of all, to get a hold of Symbols of an Alien Sky, both those uh, DVDs. And then you do have books there as well, of course, The Electric Universe, uh, Thunderbolts of the Gods, and also uh, Donald Scott's The Electric uh, sky, but uh, stay with us then, uh, David. We'll continue with. In the second hour, we begin discussing the timeline of the planetary conjunction, specifically looking at Saturn, Venus, and Mars and their different roles in this. Symbols and artistic depictions from various cultures tell similar stories. They leave clues about events, yet today it's difficult to decode what they mean. We'll discuss certain associations that we make with the five planets. David discusses Carl Jung's idea of archetypes and how these events are linked to the creation of these archetypes. Then we move on to talk about the evidence that the scars on Mars holds. Valles, Marineris, Noctis, Labyrinthus and Olympus Mons are all regions on Mars that show signs of massive electrical scarring. Later we speak more about our Sun, our solar system and its electric nature. We end the hour talking about rogue planets and the stability of our solar system today. Don't miss this exciting continuation with David Talbot. And also don't miss their conference in Las Vegas in early 2012. More information on Thunderbolts.info about the conference. To listen to the second hour, go to our website, redeyescreations.com. Log in if you're a member to stream or download. Click subscribe if you want to get access to this or any of our previous programs. The membership will give you full access to our website. You can also give a subscription as a gift, maybe to someone you know listens or to someone you think should start listening. Before we proceed with David Talbot in the second hour, I just want to mention that we have Tom Horn next up on Red Ass Radio on the topic of the lost symbol, his book Apollyon Rising 2012 and the prophecy surrounding the year 2012 and also how it relates to 1776 and the reverse of the Great Seal of the United States. Another fascinating program that you don't want to miss. Then lined up for you, we have Carl Munch, Janice Barcelo, Brooks Agnew, William Henry, and Mac Maloney, to name a few. David Talbot, second hour, coming up after this break. 